Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 162 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. Uh, for those watching on YouTube, uh, they can see Matt is out today, and I am joined once again by Nick Whitaker, our Director of Research and Trading. So welcome back, Nick. Good to be here. I like the new look, the fresh cut. Yes. The summer cut. The summer cut, a very different look from last time for, for those familiar with my long hair. Yeah, it looks good. You need to change every once in a while, right? Yeah, exactly. Good. Uh, before we begin, as always, want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on August 10th, and the data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index down 0.2% for the month and up excuse me, down 13.5% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 0.2% for the month and down 9.8% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 0.8% for the month, down 20% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 Index up 1.6% for the month, down 14.5% for the year. The Vanguard all World X United States ETF down 0.9% for the month and down 16.5% for the year. The three-month T-bill yielding 2.67%, the two-year Treasury yielding 3.28%, and the 10-year Treasury rate at 2.8%. Uh, moving on to big headlines and current events from the past week, Nick, um, we got a pretty strong jobs report last Friday that indicates a pretty tight labor market. And this is one of the statistics that I think people are scratching their heads at because we just had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth, typically uh, a popular definition of a recession, but they look around and unemployment is still yeah, near you know, <laughs> historical lows. So where, where yeah. are we at right now? Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting point. Um, it's just one of those weird moments in the market, right? Where you have a very strong, strong economy, the inflation and some of the slowdown in the global economy. You think about a lot of what's going on outside of the U.S. can impact anything across the board from from shipping to to productions. But we've not seen that translate to layoffs like we would associate with a with what I think the average person associates as a recession mm -hmm. right you hear that word you see it tossed around so we we see it in the gdp numbers a little bit but not really feeling it from a job perspective right if that makes sense right and then uh, you know obviously the the big one that people were watching for this week was the cpi report from yesterday so yeah, that's a big one um the total cpi was unchanged month over month so uh, it's at 8.5% year over year versus an expectation, or excuse me, versus June's 9.1% increase year over year. Core CPI was up marginally 0.3% month over month, uh, which leaves it up 5.9% year over year versus 5.9% in June. So no change there. So I think this was 
um, taken pretty well by the markets is yesterday uh, the market loved it was rallying you know depending on what index you were looking at it was up over one percent closer to two percent so I think people are anticipating that inflation expectations are coming down signaling that the Fed might not have to be as aggressive with interest rate hikes um, which I think will be a tailwind for stocks so um, you know I think that there is this view out there that we've already hit peak inflation mm-hmm. um which again i think people are going to be surprised at how soon the fed switches pace and cuts rates eventually i'm not saying it's going to happen this year i'm not saying it's going to happen next year but it's very possible next year and sometime in 2023 that the fed will cut rates yeah i think the the street expectations are somewhere in the the second half of 2023 last i looked um, yeah, the market really, really took this in stride and which is funny. And I see all kinds of, I saw all kinds of research yesterday, of, you know, funny memes talking about, you know, inflation in April at, you know, year over year level of 8.5%. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, <laughs> losing their mind. And you fast forward to August and it's like 8.5%. And everyone's and like, yeah, <laughs> so, this is great. The reason being, and, and you, I, I've, I've seen a lot of talking heads, uh, discuss this is what market participants want to see is that trend change, right? Mm-hmm. So we're, we've, we've, we're over that hump, you know, we want to see three consecutive data, um, points that are showing a downward trajectory and inflation. And this is kind of that sign. And that's why the market was so, so positive on it. Yeah. That's, that's really kind of like a, you could call it like a one and a half, I guess. I wouldn't really call it like two consecutive yet, mm-hmm. but it's it's kind of it's showing us a new trajectory right. of, of inflation, which is which is welcome, yeah. which is welcome. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, we'll see what the Fed uh, does at their uh, their next meeting in September. Um, but at least for right now, the uh, the stock market is taking this news uh, relatively well, especially from the last couple of CPI prints. It's been a yeah massive gap down, down one, one and a half, two yeah. percent after the CPI report. So yeah. this is a change of character, which Absolutely. I think yeah. uh, is a good thing. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles and research from this week. Uh, the first thing I had was a quote from uh, trend following trader Ed Sakota. Um, so Ed says a lot of people would rather understand the market than make money. And I think a lot of people get caught up in this, Nick, is that they they try to understand why things are happening and things don't make sense. So they're confused and they don't know what to do rather than, you know, just look at the price action, um, keep things relatively simple and keep investing in the market. And, you know, I'm going to get to my financial planning topic of the week in a little bit, but it is in regards to a book written by Nick Majuli called Just Keep Buying. Mm-hmm. And I think people make investing more complex than it is because I would say more often than not, you know, when you're trying to understand and digest all the information that's out there, it's not going to make sense to you why the market is acting a certain way. Yeah. Um, you know, a company can come out and have a horrible earnings report and, you know, they gap up and they're up 10% yeah. the next day and people are like, why is this happening? Um, it's cause it wasn't as bad as expected. <laughs> yeah. And I think we just have to 
remind ourselves that Mm. this is a market and how does a market work? If there's more demand for something, then that value is going to be perceived higher by other people and vice versa. Um, So I just want to remind people, and I think, you know, I've read a lot of Ed's stuff, um, you know, in the past couple of years. And he's just like, people, people get too caught up trying to understand why certain things happen than just mm-hmm. understanding this is happening, <laughs> you right. know? Right. Um, so, uh, again, I just thought it's, it's a really good quote. It's a simple quote. Um, I like a lot of Ed's work. So, um, you know, I wouldn't get too caught up in trying to understand why things happen all the time. It's like anything else in life. Um, you're not going to understand everything. And if you try to, then you almost, especially in the stock market might be doing yourself more harm than good. Especially nowadays with just the amount of information that there is to process. Mm-hmm. It is quite literally impossible for the human brain to process all of it. <laughs> exactly. So why even try? Uh, next thing I had was an article from Think Advisor uh, written by Melanie Waddle on June 17th titled, New Bill Would Allow Rollovers from 529 Plans to Roth IRAs. So Senators Richard Burr and Bob Casey introduced legislation called the College Savings Recovery Act that would allow for rollovers of unused 529 plan funds into a Roth IRA without incurring any penalties. So under the current law, Nick, families are penalized for withdrawing unused funds from their 529 accounts if the child doesn't go to college or doesn't use the full amount in the 529 account. So um, these withdrawals that aren't used for the qualified education expenses are subject to income tax and a 10% penalty on the earnings portion of that account. So I guess, in other words, 529 accounts are are pretty restricted right now. Um, And this bipartisan bill would allow parents to put the unused savings for their children's education into their own retirement account or their children's retirement account rather than face a penalty. So I think this would be a huge win for the everyday parent who is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place if they're like, yeah, I want to help pay for my kid's college, but what if my kid decides that they don't want to go to college yeah. or what if in, in 10 or 20 years, higher education looks a lot different than yeah. it does now. And or, I, I am not comfortable with it or I am really comfortable with it. That influences your decision on opening up a 529 account. Cause right now when you're saving for college, you can open up a 529 account, which is designated for college savings, or you can just open up like a taxable investment account but you don't get the tax benefits that a 529 right, right. offers, but there's more flexibility yeah. with the money, right? Mm-hmm. So I think this would be a, a huge win for for Congress if they, they did pass this. I don't understand why they wouldn't. Um, but just to be clear, this legislation has not been signed into law yet. It has not been voted on yet. Um, so I think this would be a, a big win for, for this administration to be able to do this because this is something that I see on a pretty consistent basis. And one of the more popular questions I get is, should I use a 529 or should I not? Because mm-hmm. I'm going to get penalized if my kid doesn't go to college. Yeah, exactly. And, well, you know, I know 529s are transferable to family members and, and that type of thing. Um, but this would just give people another option to use these funds in a positive way especially because so many people 
in today's day and age are so behind on retirement savings, this would give those people a head start, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll be looking for that uh, towards the end of the year, maybe into 2023. But I hope uh, for the sake of everybody that that gets passed. Okay. Last thing I have was a article written by Rocky White titled, Should You Buy a Stock After a Split? So I think it's a very popular theory, Nick, and you can tell me if you think I'm wrong, that people think when a stock splits its shares, it helps the stock's performance in the future because it makes it more available to more investors to buy. And after reading this article, you know, Rocky points out that it's not always the case. And I think people are going to be pretty surprised uh, at the research that Rocky did on how stock splits affect performance for that company going forward. So I uh, just wanted to read a little bit from this article. So he says, some of the most popular names in trading have become a lot more affordable. Amazon completed a 20 for one stock split, which slashed its price from over $2,000 per share to 120 per share. Google split its stock 20 for one on July 1st, and Tesla will ask shareholders to approve another stock split later this year, but those details are unknown. Current shareholders receive a proportionate number of shares, so market value of their holdings is unchanged. With stock splits in the news, it's worth looking at how stocks have behaved after splitting their shares. A stock split changes nothing fundamentally about the company and theoretically should not affect returns going forward. It does, however, lower the stock price, which could increase demand for shares from retail traders who don't want or can't spend over $2,000 for a single, sh single share of stock. So I just wanted to hop in here, Nick, and just throw a comment out there that I think the most common stock split is is two for one, yeah. meaning that for yeah. every one share you hold of stock, you know, X, Y, Z, you're going to get two shares once the split occurs. So I just want to kind of walk through an example of this to make sure people understand this before we go forward, Nick. Mm -hmm. um, so let's just, for example, say Nick holds 50 shares of company X's stock. Company X is trading at $100 per share. The total value of Nick's stock in company X is 5,000. So 50 shares times $100 per share. But if company X splits their stock two for one, the stock price will then trade at $50 per share. And Nick will now own $100 per share of company X stock instead of 50 shares. So the total value of Nick's stock in company X is still $5,000. So I just want to make it very clear that fundamentally it changes nothing about the stock or the company or the company's yeah. financial standing. Um, it yeah. just releases more shares out there, brings down the, the price, and it's more available for more people to buy. Yeah. Um, and Rocky did this kind of test on about 190 stock splits going back to 2010. So he said, based on the numbers, stock splits are not a reason to buy. Stocks that split underperformed in the short term and do not significantly beat the market in the long term. In the two weeks immediately following a split, the stocks averaged a loss of 0.43% with only 43% of the returns beating the S&P 500. Once you get out to three months, there's not a lot of difference in average return between buying stocks and buying the S&P 500. So 
again, I just wanted to throw this out there because I think there is this narrative that when a stock uh, splits their shares, that performance is you know magically going to be great over the short term, over the next six months or the next one year. But the data is telling us otherwise. So just because uh, the price per share is getting cheaper and it's more available to more people, that doesn't necessarily mean that you should blindly buy that based on that solely. Um, So any thoughts you want to add to that, Nick? Yeah, I would just point out, and and you've covered it pretty well here, um, so I don't have much to add, but uh, it's very much a psychological factor. It It is. It always has been. It is. It's it's just to bring the price down to a to a little bit more of an of an easier number to digest, um, primarily for retail investors, mm-hmm. right? Um, but as the research indicates, there's no reason why that would you know, nothing has changed. It's just math, right? Right. So and it's I think, just math. You know, there's I, nothing, there is like there's another right. psychological aspect to you know people looking at at lower priced stocks rather than stocks that are a couple hundred bucks a share because they're just thinking they're like, well, this this stock has a lot more opportunity to go up because it, right. the price per share isn't so high. But if you look back at history and you use Google as an example, right. or you know, Amazon, Google went from, you know, a couple hundred bucks to, you know, 2000, you know, bucks per share. So if you look at it, it's like, it doesn't really matter what the actual stock prices you always have to compare things in terms of percentage gains right but it's just a lot easier for your mind to wrap your head around buying a lower price security and tricking yourself into well i'm buying low and i'm going to sell it high whereas people look at google before they split and they're like oh i'm going to be buying high because this thing's 1700 bucks a share right right and that's not that's not how you should be thinking about things. Exactly. Another great example would be like Berkshire A. Yeah. Right? The, that's the, that's the extreme example, but I mean, it's a good example, right? Right. And the reason they don't split is mainly because they're not worried about it. They're not worried about it, and <laughs> they might want less volatility and less trading. Right. Right. Yeah, because so there's going to be a very few amount of investors that can trade that that stock every single day. Exactly. And so they're they're effectively by by just offering B shares instead and keeping their A shares, they, they probably decrease. I've not done any analysis on this, but I imagine they, they drastically decrease any volatility among any potential retail base, if at all. Absolutely. Whenever they're communicating with the street and their top investors, probably easier for them to be Mm -hmm. honest. Yeah. They they can understand who their top shareholders are, uh, much easier because they probably have a, a much higher percentage of institutional. Yeah, investors. and if that if that's and if that share class moves substantially, they probably know who exactly is. Yeah, is they're, doing they're it. like, oh, it's probably Joe Schmo from that last meeting. <laughs> yeah. He was pretty angry two weeks ago. Right, that he's that he's blowing out. So. Right. So, um, yeah. So, just thought it was an interesting thing on splits since we've seen a couple here uh, over the past year or so in some of the bigger names, but definitely. Um, not a recommendation to to just buy blindly when a stock uh, splits their shares for sure. So absolutely, uh, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. So the first piece I have is uh, from a Bloomberg article, a research article that came out yesterday, actually. Um, and it came out after the CPI print, and you know the market's taken off, and everything's looking looking hunky dory. And it uh, the theme of the article was, you know, have we have we reached the bottom on the spare market? Are we going to retest the lows? People on both sides of the fence there. And um, 
the uh, the SP five hundred surpassed the four thousand one hundred and seventy seven dollar level yesterday, uh, which marked the previous peak during the May June rebound. Um, and so this article, there's a chart, and and Jenna will throw the chart up here just to kind of put it in perspective as to to what we're looking about and why some of these market technicians have really signaled this out and and called it, but. There's, there's a handful of little snippets that I want to just read through quickly um, to give you a sense of, you know, there are people on both sides of the coin and, and you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes from here. But the, the first one's from a chief market technician at BTIG. Uh, clearing June's high on a closing basis would go a long way to suggest the trend was shifting. Uh, a client survey last week from Wolf Research, 75% of the participants said the S&P 500 has yet to reach a bottom. Mm, that's that's a juicy contrarian. Yep. And then you, uh, you've got a, another S, uh, senior vice president from U.S. Bank saying, we're not yet convinced that the upturn in stock prices we've seen is yet a firm trend. Um, oh got another market technician discussing that level, breaching the... Uh, 4,177 level on the S&P 500 is important from a trend-following perspective because it starts to establish a sequence of higher highs and higher lows, or what is more affectionately known as an uptrend. Right, and we've talked about that a lot before, you know, the definition of an uptrend and a downtrend. And if people are are looking at this chart um, that Jenna's throwing up on, on the YouTube page right now, you'll kind of see why we're talking about this 4200 ish level Mm -hmm. on a chart is because this is when we reached this level the last time back in june that's when the next sell-off happened so that's why it's an important level that people are monitoring and they're saying okay are we going to break through this and signal a new uptrend or are we just going to head lower because there's so much selling at this level that there's not enough buying to push us higher right so you know this is something that we call in our industry resistance where we reach a level where we've seen selling in the past and it takes time to break through that that's what we define as resistance and that's an important level for us uh to determine because you know one way or another it'll break up or down and that kind of signals the next month or two of trading and yeah. what that trend is going to be exactly. um and and as of right now as we sit here today the market's up again and we're through that 4200 level um there's still plenty of time for it to, to be a false breakout to the upside and, and time for it to reverse but as of right now looking at this combined with outperformance some from more of the aggressive sectors of the market i think nick mm-hmm. so consumer discretionaries financials starting to to turn around uh, technology Tech a little bit yeah. since since the bottom that we saw in june that's a change of character that we've seen that we did not see from previous market rallies this year absolutely so in in march when the market rallied 10 or 11 percent in may when the market rallied five to seven percent we still defensive. saw the defensive areas of the market outperforming yeah. and what gives credence i think to this rally is you're seeing the more aggressive areas of the market turn up yep um which again it, it could just be a fake out but i think this one has a lot more evidence behind it that it could be the start of of a new uptrend yeah the technicals are are pretty strong and that's it's one of the reasons i, I brought it up on the podcast i'm actually going to talk a little bit more about it uh, on the next piece um 
the the last little quote I have here kind of leads me into my next piece. Uh, this remains a bear market rally until we close above the 4,200. This guy's calling 4,232 level on the S&P. After that, history reminds, uh, reminds us that no bear market ever recovered 50% of its decline only to set an even lower low. It would be an early signal that the bear is behind us. So mm -hmm. what he's saying here is basically throughout history and our bear market from the peak to the bottom of the bear market and then 50% back, we recover 50% of that decline, which is, I think it's around like the 17% in this bear market. Mm -hmm. um, we've never retested another low after, after recouping 50%. So right. if we close above that 50%, history and stats tell us that the low is in. Mm -hmm. Anything can happen. Absolutely. You know, the, the classic financial line, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> because it happens in history, <laughs> yeah. just because it happens in history doesn't mean it's going to, uh, it's going to be that way, which, yeah, which leads me into, to another chart. And this is uh, from a tweet actually on the ninth and it's from jury and Temer. He's a director of global macro over at fidelity. And he says the recent rally is at a crossroad, which we've been talking about here. We should soon see whether it, has been merely a bear market rally or the start of something more sustainably bullish overbought and a bear market is a signal to sell, but overbought and a bull market is often a sign of strength. Mm -hmm. And so there's a chart here and this chart, I like this chart a little better because it, it puts it into a bit more of a historical context. You can really kind of see if you were to draw a line across that 4,200, you can see how there's been multiple points over the past four months that this, this, area has been in focus it's so an important area it is and so that's why you know i thought it would be good to just point this out to listeners and there's a lot of talk on the street about the technicals right now and um, kind of where we are in the earnings cycle we're through a lot of the big earnings we're kind of in the tail end of of the season yep. a lot of people even say oh, okay the season's over because most of the big boys have have uh, reported already so um it's you know we we have the economic data behind us this week as well so um, yeah, and I guess pretty the, closely watched. The, the two other problems. points I want to make here is, you know, um, in addition to the more aggressive areas of the market participating in this rally than they have prior, we're also seeing stronger breadth re readings. And when mm -hmm. I say breadth, um, I'm talking about the number of stocks that are participating in this rally. So <clears throat> previously, and the 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 two market rallies that we just talked about earlier in the year in March and then in, in uh, May, you know, there wasn't a large percentage of stocks participating in those upside moves. Whereas this time there are, and people have different, um, different indicators for that. It's like the percentage yeah, of stocks making new 20 day highs or new 50 day highs yeah. or percentage of stocks above their 50 day moving average or 200 day moving average. We're seeing more, strength there that's number right. one and number two is we're seeing a really strong move from small cap companies yeah and if people have listened to this podcast before is that one of the signs of a bear market coming to an end or coming out of a recessionary environment is that small companies tend to lead the next rally forward because those are viewed as the risky aggressive levels and Absolutely. if people are buying up those names that's a pretty risk on trade. And right. it came at a pretty logical point 
from uh, the 2019 highs. And maybe next week I can put a chart out there for people to show. But when we were talking about support and resistance, it bounced off the highs in 2019. And then the highs right before COVID hit in 2020 was a pretty firm support level that held. And now small caps are moving higher off of that. Again, if they continue to outperform, that's just more evidence that, you know, the next six months could be a change of trend to the upside for the market. Here's to that. Let's hope. Yeah, I know. Let's hope. I know. Um, the last piece I have here is kind of going, taking a step back from the technicals and and the bear market and, and the discussion there, but taking a look and, and looking at PE ratios Boo. and yeah Boo. <laughs> i know we don't like that <laughs> it's nice to see it from a market perspective i just i like this chart because it gives people perspective um and it's just a, some perspective on our stocks fairly fairly valued um this is not um by any means a recommendation to stake your uh retirement or your livelihood on pe ratios <laughs> i don't agree with that uh i think it's rough riding if that was it the case. would be very rough riding um, but, uh, from a, from an all encompassing view, from a market view, it's, it's kind of interesting to see. Um, and this is from compound advisors. And so the, the, the note says the following, the average year in PE ratio for the S and P 500 since 1989 is 19.6. We entered the year 17% above that level at 22.9 and are right there now. So we're back to 19.6. Are stocks fairly valued then? Yes, but only if you believe earnings aren't going to decline, which would be the typical behavior in recession. On that front, earnings are already down 7% from their peak in Q4 of 21, and 1% year-over-year growth rate is the slowest we've seen since Q4 of 2020. Um, and then there's a, there's a big chart here, and you can kind of just see what it looks like over, over history and... Um, and show you that you know we're we're back in a normal range. We've talked about it before, but this is just another, you know, am, amid this bear market rally that we've seen. I'm sure, and you know, coming out of earnings season, I'm sure people are wondering, okay, well, what are the valuations at now? And we're still at a what I would deem a healthy level, generally speaking. Right. Generally speaking. I yeah. Think it's a fair I statement. Valuations is just a really interesting conversation because. It's and again, I hate to be the guy that says it's it's different this time, but things are so different right now than they were 30 or 40 years ago that mm -hmm. I think it's so hard to compare valuations because companies are so much more efficient right now. There's yeah. so much more technology used and like the overvalued, undervalued conversation just doesn't take any of that into consideration. So um Again, I'm not a huge fan of using, you know, PE ratios to, to value companies just because it's it's not really relative and doesn't hold a lot of weight for me. But um, interesting to say the least. I mean, valuations have definitely definitely come in. I mean, for gosh sakes, Facebook's considered a value company right now uh, that we talked about earlier that it was added to the Russell 1000 value ETF, which was uh, mind boggling That's for fun. me. So. Um, well, thanks for, for sharing that stuff, Nick. Uh, wrapping up with the financial planning topic of the week, 
comes from an article written uh, that reviewed the book Just Keep Buying by Nick Majuli. Uh, and this article takes uh, away uh, 12 things from the book Then I wanted to just share a few. Um, and this book is definitely on my list to read since I'm a big fan of Nick's work on his blog of dollars and data. Um, so I'll let you all know uh, how the book is after I give it a read. But um, just a couple things here that I wanted to point out. Uh, pose the question, which is more important, cutting expenses or increasing income? Assuming you don't suddenly inherit a million bucks, there's only two ways to increase your savings, cut expenses or increase income. Cutting expenses is easier, but you quickly reach a limit of how much you can cut. In the U.S., the bottom 20% already don't make enough to cover basic necessities like housing and food. That's a first world country, world country, mind you. It's harder to increase your income, but if you want to get financial security, that's critical. Some ideas to increase income, side gigs, for example, selling your services online, promotions, or getting a higher paying job. Research has undeniably shown that households who earn more save more. What about stories of people who earn a lot but blow it all? Those are actually outliers. The biggest lie in personal finance is it's all about cutting your spending. Sure, review your expenses, but maybe there's no need to ditch the lattes. And again, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of this thinking because it's true that you can only cut so much and you start to cut off the things that make you happy and the things that you enjoy in life to the point where you're not happy anymore. Now life right? is a struggle. And right? yeah, life yeah. is a struggle. It's not as good as it was. So even though it's harder to do, looking at ways to increase your income is the better way to do it. And like he said, historically, you save more when you earn more. So, yeah. um, you know, I think this is this is actually probably the perfect environment for that right now, because I think uh, employees and people that are looking for jobs have all the power. So uh, if you find yourself in this category, um, might not be a bad idea to, you know, talk about a raise or go shop around the job market to see if you can get um, any increase in income. So uh, second one is, oh God, this is my favorite rule in finance. Use the two times rule. For every dollar that I splurge, I have to spend an equivalent amount on investing or charity. So this is my favorite thing, Nick. Um, I, I've said multiple times on here how I've used this before. So when the new like AirPods came out, really wanted them. And it was like right after I got done like reading this on the podcast before. And I was like, well, I'm a hypocrite if I don't, if I yeah. buy the AirPods <laughs> and I don't put this amount into my investment account. So it's just a good way to hold yourself accountable, especially if you're behind. Now, am I saying you have to be crazy about this and do this with everything? No, absolutely not. But it's just a good way to keep yourself in check saying, hey, can I afford this? Hey, yeah. I can only afford it if I can put an equal amount right. into my investment account or into my IRA, right? It's probably a great rule for major splurge purchases. Like I'm thinking if you want like an e-bike or a dirt bike or right. a boat or something like that. Right, exactly. So I don't know. I just, I really like this one. So I, I try to stick to this uh, as much as I can. I'm not saying to take this as biblical, but um, try it out if you haven't before. And it's actually, uh, it's pretty gratifying. Um, how much lifestyle creep is okay? How much of your income raises can you safely splurge on? Is it 75%, 25%? For most people, 50% is okay. Once you start spending more than 50% of your raises, you start delaying retirement. 
The math is complicated, but if you want a quick and easy way to enjoy your raises without delaying retirement, just remember this. Save 50% of the raise and spend 50% of the raise. When should you invest? Today. Today, Junior. Most markets go up most of the time. <laughs> Buy low, sell high sounds simple, but in reality, timing the markets is extremely hard. Historical data shows buy now works better than buy in over 12 months. Besides, if you're not investing today, what makes you think you'll buy in when the market crashes? I've said that to myself countless times, but I know it's super hard to do. Emotions get in the way. So scary to buy now. Let's wait a little longer is the common mantra. Don't wait to buy the dip. Even perfect timing can't beat time in the market. So, you know, this is obviously pretty good with today's environment, Nick. Um, I agree and disagree with this one because mentally it's easy for people to dollar cost average over a six month period or a 12 month period. And hey, if that helps you sleep at night, I'm all for doing that, even though it's not the most optimal way. But you know, Nick has run the numbers on this. Nick Majuli, not Nick Whitaker, has run the numbers on this and posted this data on his blog before. And it shows time and time again that if you're thinking of waiting, it almost never pays to wait if you're in the market for a long period of time, mm -hmm. right? Anything could happen within a year. Anything can happen within two years. But over a five to 10 year period, the odds are pretty good that the market's going to be higher. So um, if you're a long-term investor, don't get too caught up on trying to nail that initial entry point. Um, mm -hmm. A good way is just to invest it all at the same time or just dollar cost average over a couple months. Yeah. So, um, next is how to deal with market crashes. And this is an easy one. Just keep buying. When there's blood in the streets, allow your, it allows your money to grow the most. There's a common financial table which shows how much you need your assets to recover to break even. For example, a 20% loss needs a 25% gain to recover. A 50% loss needs an 100% gain to recover. Normally, this table is shared to remind you how badly losses hurt. Um, but reframe your thoughts and it can also help deal with fear. For example, if a market crashes by 50% and you expect it to recover completely within two years, that's a 100% gain or 41.5% annual returns. That's pretty nice. Yeah. So again, um, just a couple of, of takeaways from, from Nick's book from a person that read it. Um, I'd like to, to take some time and read this and share some of my own thoughts on this, Nick. But, um, you know, just a reminder that um, during times like these, it's not easy to do to keep buying and keep throwing money towards the market. But when you have economic stress and the market's going through tough time, that doesn't give people, in my opinion, the right just to halt what they've been doing for the past five years. Right. Right. Yeah. It's got to stick with it. It's going to pay its dividends stay over the time. Course. I think it's probably even harder for the average investor not to sell. Mm -hmm. Right. That's what I've seen a lot. And you read stories or you hear stories of of people selling, you know, after the market's down 20 percent. It's like you're better off doing nothing mm -hmm. if you're motivated to sell by fear then you're probably selling at the wrong time yeah exactly yeah. and we've seen that happen time and time again and how mm -hmm. that has played out over history i mean if you just look back you know at the at the podcast we did last week and you know that thought experiment if you had someone tell you what was exactly going to happen in the world over the next 30 years no one in their right mind 
would have put their money to work in the stock market and that would have been the wrong decision right um because we deal with this stuff and it's not fun when you have to deal with it but you deal with it and you move forward and the market recovers and i truly believe that this time is no different so absolutely absolutely um anything else you want to leave listeners with nick before we sign off for the week no no hope everyone has a nice weekend yeah thanks everybody for listening to podcast episode number 162 we can't wait to be back with you uh next week for 163 Uh, i know the jessup wealth management family is going to have a fun weekend we're headed up to south bend indiana because megan in our office is getting married so congratulations to megan and her fiance mario um on on their wedding this week so i know we're going to be having a fun time celebrating them this week Yes, Indiana style, right? Indiana style, baby. All right, everybody, take care. Have a good weekend, and we'll catch up with you next week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's double www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.